Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of all things British and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into this show which celebrates the best of British food and drink. On this show, we'll be speaking to Zach of Wiltshire Truffles. The decade-old British business supplies most of the Michelin-starred restaurants in the UK and is loved by top chefs across the country. We'll find out what actually a truffle is, the different types we eat, the hard truth about truffled products and how they can even be used in desserts. Fergus the Forager will then be speaking about sea buckthorn, but first, here's an update from the food world. This week, the world's 50 best bars were announced via a virtual awards ceremony. London's Connaught Bar was crowned the world's best bar and the best bar in Europe after 10 years of being on the list. The chic 1920s-style joint, which sits within the five-star Connaught Hotel, is known for its legendary martinis. Next, British food and drink is to be given authenticity logos in order to differentiate the products from copycat versions after Brexit. There has been concern from traditional food producers that once the UK leaves the EU, the names of the food they produce, such as Stilton and Melton Mowbray pork pies, will not be protected. So the government has now released the logos. It'll be stamping on British food products to show customers that they are the real deal. So things like Scotch whiskey, Welsh lamb and Cornish clotted cream will be among the products granted this special status. Lastly, Borough Market Online, the produce market's delivery service, has expanded their zone to a 10-mile radius. Order online and your goods are delivered by zero-emission electric bikes and hybrid vehicles. They also have Borough by Post, a nationwide delivery service, featuring up to 20 traders with a single delivery charge. So those are your three foodie things on your doorstep this week. Now I'm joined by Zach Frost, founder of Wiltshire Truffles. Hi, Zach. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming on. Uh, have you been out today searching for some truffles? Uh, I haven't actually been searching for truffles today. That That's the most fun and most relaxing part of my job. And <laughs> today I've probably been doing the least fun and least relaxing part, which is sort of frantically handling sales and rushing around and not being off the phone so yeah I very much need a trip to the woodlands to get back in sync (laughs) yeah good good well shall we kick off with um kind of keep it basic and can you just describe what actually is a truffle Um, A truffle is the fruiting body of an underground fungus that grows off the roots of trees. So it's sort of a a web of tiny threads called mycelia, which is the actual organism. And the truffle is the fruiting body that grows up um, and either pokes out of the ground a bit or more commonly is found just under the ground. Um, And it has a very strong smell, which is why we use dogs to find them. And they are uh, there are actually tens of thousands of types of truffle, but there are a few particular ones that are revered in the kitchen um, and therefore much appreciated by chefs and lovers of food. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's always the most sort of luxurious ingredient. And there are, as you said, there's lots of different types um, at the doorstep kitchen. We like to appreciate what's on our doorstep. So in particular, the ones that we can find in the UK. Um, so would you mind explaining a bit about the different types and definitely the ones we can get abroad, but also the English truffle? 
Well, there are uh, sort of four or five main types of truffle that are enjoyed in kitchens. Uh, there's a few more obscure ones that you might come across sort of regionally. Uh, but by and large, obviously, people know there's white and black truffles. Mm. Um, the white ones are the really expensive ones that get all the attention. Uh, they're known as Alba truffles, but they grow all over Italy and Eastern Europe in, in certain parts. Um, and then there's also a lesser known white truffle called the spring white, which, as the name suggests, grows in the spring and is much less valued than the main white truffle from the autumn and winter. And then in terms of black truffles, you've got uh, the black winter truffle, which is generally known as the Perigord truffle. Um, although, once again, it doesn't really grow much in Perigord. It mainly comes from Spain and Provence and a little bit from Italy nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as well as the winter truffle, you've got a um, less valuable uh, sort of duo of truffles, really, the summer and autumn truffle. And I put them together because they are now biologically known to be pretty much genetically the same species. But as the name would suggest, one grows in the summer and one in the autumn. Uh, the autumn one isn't just the summer one left in the ground for a bit longer. They do tend to grow in different areas and they have subtle differences. And both of them are native to the UK. And the big difference is, apart from the time you find them, is the flavour of the autumn truffle is much superior to the summer. So if you think of the summer truffle as basically the mildest truffle, it's sort of mushroomy or at the beginning of the season has very little flavour at all. Um, So chefs that buy those ones, we don't even really sell them because we think they're a waste of time. But chefs that buy those ones tend to cover them in truffle oil because to give them some flavour, all of which is fake, but we can come on to that later. Um, So that's sort of a a cheats way to do it. But then the autumn truffle is a much better version of the summer truffle. And that's what we find mainly in Wiltshire. And they don't, uh, they certainly couldn't compete with a winter truffle. They're not as luxurious and strongly flavoured, but they are really delicious, um, particularly um, in autumn dishes. They go very well with other autumn flavours. And um, yeah, they're they're really lovely for what they are, um, despite being slightly less noble and expensive than the sort of the really famous black and white truffles uh, that you mm-hmm. see in all the headlines. Okay, and the autumn truffle, I assume um, you're finding quite a few of those at the moment. Uh, yeah, well, it's the sort of the height of the season now, um, so we do find quite a lot, but we are limited to uh, sort of the supply that's available in. Uh, our woods really and then we work with a couple of other trusted hunters um, in the UK but by and large uh, all the English truffles um, almost all of the ones we hunt come from our woods in Wiltshire and we just wish there were more of them I mean we we hunt a lot and we've planted lots of new woodlands to try and develop the uh, the market and and produce more truffles in the years to come but the problem is now just the sheer numbers of truffles we supply to the UK um, it can't even come close to meeting demand from the UK. But we very much hope that will change, and it is changing. And every year there's more and more truffles coming from Wiltshire and some other parts of the UK where truffles grow. So hopefully um, in years to come, a bigger and bigger percentage every year of the summer and autumn truffles used in the UK will be from the UK, uh, which might be particularly useful after December the 31st when <laughs> things become a bit more difficult to import, perhaps. Yeah, yeah okay, well, let's hope that, um, yes, more on the rise. Yeah. Um, so do they spread like mushrooms when they open up in the spores and they kind of spread that way? Is that right? 
Well, the reason truffles have such a strong and nice smell and taste is because that's how they're spread, basically. They're, they're much too heavy to spread on the air, um, like mushroom spores. Uh, you know, some mushrooms spread on the wind mm. and, and stuff because they're so light. Um, truffles are great big sort of like stones, really. Um, so they're not blowing anywhere unless it's a hurricane. Um, so basically the way they spread is by being eaten and passed through animals, which is why they have the strong smell. So they want to be found. That's why they smell so strong. And um, they are loved by almost every animal. So we have sort of tiny beetles that nibble holes in truffles, slugs that make bigger holes, um, mice, deer, badgers. Obviously, dogs love the smell, but can be trained not to eat them. Um, basically, ev every animal from sort of microscopic things to really big things loves truffles. I mean, in Italy, there's a big problem with wild boar. Uh, we import a lot of Australian Australian truffles, and they're, um, you've guessed it, the problem is in a lot of places, kangaroos that love truffles. Mm. <laughs> so basically, all animals love them, and that's how they spread their spore um, by being eaten and spread around. So if you lose a truffle to an animal then it's sad not to have hunted it yourself but at least you can take you know some pleasure in the fact that it's the spores being spread by that animal almost certainly okay so in the woodlands up near you you ideally don't want loads of deer and animals rummaging around the area <laughs> no we don't. We have most of our woods are deer fenced, um, yeah. also because deer ruin young trees. So uh, that helps a lot. And then some of the others are badger fenced with low wires because badgers absolutely love truffles and will just come in and, and run amok with them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so fighting off pests is a, is a big thing. Um, yeah, snails are a big problem in a lot of places. Um, luckily, we don't seem to be too bothered by them here. Um, and yeah, it, it's pretty much like any anything you're hunting or growing. You're you're fighting against nature, really. To uh, when I grow vegetables, and it's like a endless war. You know, just and when slugs. you've mastered the rabbits, the <laughs> oh, slugs yeah. come in, and then when the slugs are done, the pigeons come. And, you know, everyone yeah. wants a piece of you, basically. But I mean, that's nature, isn't it? So it's that's fine. You you don't expect to hunt every gram of truffle that grows in your woods, and I wouldn't want to. It's it's nice to sort of be working with nature. Yeah, and I guess it's quite nice that you're in a position that um, you can't keep up with demand. That's quite a nice position to be in. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really good. I mean, we pride ourselves on um, complete honesty as a truffle company, which you'd think goes without saying, but I, I've not necessarily found it an industry that's rife with honesty up to now. Um, and being totally honest, I would say that although English truffles are very nice, they're, they're not really any better than... The ones mm. we're importing some absolutely amazing truffles from Italy, autumn truffles at the moment, that are um, probably actually even better than the ones we're yeah. hunting in England. Although the ones we hunt in England are amazing. But the point I'm making is that um, the reason people want them is because they're local, basically, because local food is very much in fashion. Um, and rightly so. It's nice that people want to eat local produce from around them. So really, since we started hunting in our woods sort of 15 years ago, local food has been very very popular people think it always has that's not actually true you know if you go back 30 40 years there was no concept of eating locally and in fact eating from as far afield was far cooler and more desirable you know yeah. if you could produce strawberries in the winter that was the absolute that's height cool of sophistication <laughs> you know so local food is kind of a, a newish concept and that's what's really caused the demand for english truffles so that's why we're really trying to produce as many as we can, but unfortunately, it's a long-term game. Yeah, I can imagine it's not a quick win. No, planting woodlands. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and the, the trouble is, truffles don't start really producing a lot until the woodlands are ten to fifteen years old, if you're lucky. And I say a big if because 
um, more truffle woodlands completely fail and never produce truffles than than succeed. Um, if they all, if it was a sort of guaranteed return, then every farmer in England would have, you know, there wouldn't be any barley or rapeseed left in the countryside that have all planted hundreds of beech and oak and hazel trees. Mm. So it's it's definitely a big risk because you might well never get return, and you've got to give up a lot of land and money to get the project going, basically. Yeah. So, um, and you've got to really think ahead. So I think most of the most of the truffle woods we're planting from now on will be uh, as much hunted by my kids as me. Yeah, because you're a family business, aren't you? Very much a family business. Yeah, we've um, it's myself and my wife, and now I've also employed my mother. Um, and it's weird because all the truffle companies we work with in Europe tend to be multi generational, but I'm the only one I think that's employed upwards. You know, it tends to be that you employ your children and pass it down from generation to generation. But my mother didn't barely knew what a truffle was um, 10 years ago. And now I honestly class her as one of the UK's top experts in identifying and picking truffles. Um, and my children very much as well. They're, they're only, the oldest is 14, but they're, they're really into it and want to get involved in it. So yeah, nice. very much a family business. Oh, good. And I assume you have dogs, which are obviously part of the family. Yes, uh, we have uh, two Labradors. Uh, we had uh, another one uh, who died a few years ago, so we we're on our second and third truffle dogs. Uh, the second one is an uh, absolute genius, Stanley. He's a master <laughs> of his craft. Uh, Freddie is, um, let's just say, still in training. He's he's not as much of a natural as Stanley, unfortunately, so he's learning slowly, but he's getting there. I wouldn't even know how to begin to train a dog not to, to smell the truffle but not to eat it that must be yeah. pretty hard work well the weird thing is the first two dogs everyone says oh it must be so hard training a truffle dog but I didn't ever really train them I mean they almost sort of trained themselves I mean the first one I it was almost as simple as I sort of said find me a truffle and then he did <laughs> and then and then he sort of trained the second dog and so I thought it was the easiest thing in the world. And then it's only now I've bought a dog that's much harder to train that I've realized, I, I sort of thought to myself, well, how the hell do you do it? <laughs> you know? The yeah. other two just did it automatically. But I think we'll get there. He's just a, um, he's a late starter. You know, he's <laughs> sort of very excitable and, and not as calm as the other two. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's not so hard. You just need a, an intelligent dog with a good sense of smell. Um, actually, almost all dogs have a good sense of smell. Uh, so the most important thing is that they've got to be totally devoted to the owner mm-hmm. um, and a love of treats helps well uh, sort of food love that's why I use laps <laughs> they do anything for a little bit of biscuit so uh, a yeah. lab yeah or ours are both labs yeah oh yeah definitely they are notoriously greedy <laughs> yeah exactly and they they like truffles but they also see how cross I get if they were to hurt one and like Stanley my my dog wouldn't ever dream of eating i mean the thought of putting one in his mouth or eating it he just he couldn't do that be against his nature and he's he treats them with so much respect i mean he, he digs them out but he he did he's an amazing digging dog but then he will never hurt the truffle or scratch it so if he can flip it all the way out without if it's got soft soil around it he'll do that mm. but he knows instinctively to stop if it's sort of stuck by a root he'll just expose the top and then he'll step back and let me come and carefully take it out with a trowel because he knows that he'll tear it out with his hands oh it's his paws rather his hands <laughs> he really is part of the family <laughs> um, I, yeah well I think of him as human you know yeah he's so human so yeah, yeah he's, he's amazing basically yeah. oh incredible and how do you tell if it's a good truffle um, well 
no truffle is going to really win a beauty contest. So no, um, even the perfect true. round, lovely ones are sort of warty and strange looking. So really, the most important thing is the smell because that's smell, that's yeah. what we want truffles for. And I'm always amazed by how many chefs just want to uh, see what they think of as a pretty truffle. And they do vary a lot in aroma. And um, most chefs would understand to sort of want to smell them. But uh, to me, that, that should be everything. And... Um, a lot of chefs will look for a nice sort of round shaped truffle because it's easier to deal with um, and less uh, more easy to clean and easy to slice. But it should be about the aroma. And I actually quite like the funky looking ones, the kind of Nobbly. weird looking lumpy <laughs> ones. Yeah, because they, they to me, they look more like a fungus and not, you know, not a neat little disc. Yeah. Um, but as well as the aroma, you're looking for obviously very fresh truffle and um, uh, firm to the touch. It shouldn't be sort of soft and squidgy. A white truffle will have a little bit of give to it, um, and so will a black winter truffle. But English summer and autumn truffles should definitely be nice and firm. And uh, that's really actually more of an issue with shelf life because they'll last longer. Sometimes you'll get a, a truffle that's got a bit of softness to it and lovely dark brown colour inside, and it's so ripe. And a chef might spurn it because he'll worry it going off quickly. But those are the ones to grab and eat yourself super quickly because you know they're <laughs> going to taste amazing. And so do they lose their aroma and their taste then kind of over time? Yeah. Uh, well, white truffles start fading pretty rapidly. I mean, after hunting and you need to eat them as soon as possible within ideally within a few days or at most a week. Black truffles, uh, they do, of course, need to be fresh, but not in the same way that white truffles do. And in fact, their aroma develops after coming out the ground for a couple of days. So if you hear someone showing off of, oh, I hunted this truffle today and I'm eating it immediately, it's, um, it's not actually often as good as one that's been out of the ground for a few days. Um, our partners in Australia actually had a university out there test uh, aroma compounds and stuff, and they found that a black winter truffle actually hits its peak aroma around six days after coming out of the ground. Oh, interesting. Um, and then will start to fade again. So obviously you want fresh truffles. Um, freshness isn't as important with black truffles as some people think, though it is very important with white truffles. Yeah. And of course, I'm talking in terms of eating them. In terms of buying them, especially if you're buying a kilo, then freshness is very important because if you might buy them at the perfect point but then they're only ways down mm. so if you're a chef buying a huge amount of truffles you definitely want them as fresh as you can get mm. and you know rather than when they're just peaking and on the way down yeah well your truffles um you supply the most incredible restaurants across the uk um like the mission starred um restaurant cowth park and uh, two mission starred mark birchall's um, more hall um what are the most extraordinary things you've seen these chefs done with your truffles? Because I can, they are obviously so inventive. I think I did. I see a truffle porridge. Yeah. From was that um, Jeremy? That was Jeremy. Chan? Yeah, Jeremy from Ikoi, um, one of my absolute favourite chefs in the country. I adore his food, um, and he basically sent me a recipe for truffle porridge. Basically, it's using our truffle butter that we sell. That's made by Ampersand Dairy. It's a cultured truffle butter, so it's basically just his porridge recipe with truffle butter all over the top and honey and sea salt. That sounds and that's incredible. Really good. But yeah, the white truffles, interestingly, are probably the most famous and special to eat but in many ways the most boring for chefs because they're so special that you just kind of serve them on a generally on quite a bland dish pasta or fonduta or risotto or uh, or eggs really that's kind of your your options and and doing anything more than that would be almost like um 
making a cocktail out of a bottle of fine wine. You know, it's like you, you wouldn't waste it. You keep it really simple. Um, whereas black truffles are much more inventive. I mean, the night before last, I had an amazing dessert at Andrew Wong's restaurant, A Wong in Victoria, which was incredible. And he's been doing that for a while now. With um, It's a, called a postcard from Hunan, um, and it's got banana, chocolate, and sesame, and something else i can't remember like sugar crisps with black truffle and that's amazing like truffle desserts are my my new favorite thing i I really love them uh helen de ros restaurant in in mayfair is doing an amazing white truffle ice cream at the moment yes i actually have seen that beautiful dessert with white truffle um so yeah quite a few desserts around um black truffles go amazingly well with so many things i mean they they just add a umami and they can sort of enhance other ingredients in a way that um often it's not about tasting of truffle so much it's about the truffle just bringing some sort of magic to the dish Mm. uh that you might think oh this dish doesn't really taste of truffle but then you took the truffle away and all the magic and specialness that you were tasting is gone and it it just tastes much more run-of-the-mill after that so that's um, a good chef. That's what they'll use truffle to do generally is to sort of bring something special to the dish. Yeah, yeah. Unless it's a Alba truffle and then you keep it simple and... Yeah, exactly. So Alba truffles, the opposite. And Alba truffles have very little taste, really. It's much more about the aroma. So you, you kind of eat with your nose as well, of course. So, I mean, not literally because that'd be disgusting, but <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? So basically it's about slicing the white truffle at the last minute at the table side and then you eat a simple usually quite fat based dish um, and then you just get that aroma combined with the uh, mouthfeel of, of the dish and that's that's what creates the magic there really yeah alan de at the dorchester always has plenty of white truffles going to be shaved onto dishes last minute and it just looks so tempting yeah well that's definitely the way to serve white truffles yeah. really um, but uh, yeah, the, the the price isn't cheap for them, especially if you enjoy mm. it in a top level restaurant. Um, but it's something that I think if you're a lover of food, you should try and do once a year at least. Yeah. And actually, if you move away from the sort of two and three stars, um, there are lots of really good um, little restaurants where you can enjoy white truffle at um, sort of almost market prices, really. I mean, I don't know if they're doing it this year because of the circumstances everyone's in this year, but two I can think of straight away is Orisay, Jackson Box's restaurant in Notting Hill, mm-hmm. and uh, Jeremy Lee at Quo Vardis. Um, both of them, usually during the season, will do at least a few weeks of uh, sort of buying the truffle at the same price they cost in shops. And that's the way to do it with white truffle because I really think with well, these places that sell it for sort of £20 a gram, it's just ridiculous because you, unless you're like insanely wealthy, you can't possibly do it any other way than have like four grams, which to me is, it's like, again, to use a wine comparison, it's like being given a sip of a nice bottle of wine. You know, you, you're not going to enjoy it. Far better to go somewhere the truffles are priced realistically and just do it once a year and cover your plate in white truffles and really just enjoy it <laughs> properly yeah, yeah. Um, or to get in an advert we now have a retail business as well so um, we actually supply the general public direct which we never used to do but we started since lockdown so you can get exactly the same white truffles as served in all the top two and three star restaurants for yourself at home yeah sorry advert over. no no no. I was going <laughs> to ask you next about buying them directly because I'm thinking Christmas and treating yourself or for, for me as a foodie I don't really want things for 
before Christmas, but if someone gave me like a small truffle, that would just make my year. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. I hate things and stuff and things like that. I always hate presents and that sort of fake grimace you've got to do of yeah. really liking it. And you think, oh, I would have chosen something totally different. Um, but yeah, so we now supply the product. We, we never did before. We've had this business 10 years and just supplied restaurants. But then the main reason we did it was in lockdown. Um, obviously, we wanted to keep our business going, but it was primarily to support our truffle partners because we were just going to the Australian season. Australian truffles are a very big thing for us. And we really didn't want to just say to them, you won't sell any truffle this year, you know, let it all rot in the ground. So we set up a business to supply the public direct and also to make truffle products like real ones, uh, not the chemical type stuff you get. Um, in most shops and um, it took off in a way we just couldn't have believed we were literally felt like Amazon just packing truffle orders through the whole of lockdown which was great but then the other great thing of course now is that it it was a huge operation to do it because we had to set up the website and the logistics and everything else to be able to do it and we've taken on a couple of staff as well now to help handle it and um, we'd never have had time to do that because I've basically been in a blur of busyness for the last decade. And so now lockdown gave us the chance to do that. And it's so nice to be able to bring the sort of top quality truffles to the general public now. Good. So what kind of um, products do you have? You mentioned that Jeremy Chan uses a truffle butter of yours. Yeah, well, he doesn't actually use it in the restaurant. He uses uh, fresh truffles in the restaurant and he creates the most amazing things with them. So I definitely recommend uh Ikoi is a restaurant to go for people that think truffles are just about pasta and eggs. He does mm-hmm. some really good things for them. Uh, but yeah, he, he basically enjoyed our truffle butter at home during lockdown. Okay. Um, okay. So we do the um, we do a truffle butter in partnership with Ampersand Dairy, who's our favourite butter in the world, as used in lots of the, the most top, amazing uh, stuff. Lots of the top restaurants we supply use that butter. So we've always taught for years about working together and then again lockdown gave us the chance to actually have some time to both sit down and do it um and then we also now work with a uh, uh, fed farm dairy doing a truffled baron bigod cheese oh i'm obsessed with their cheese really good as well i had um Selman sam um sam wilkin from the podcast on uh, a couple of weeks ago and okay. um He's a head cheesemonger at the Cheese Bar in London and uh, he knows a lot about cheese. And we were talking about Fen Farm Dairy. Apparently they have amazing yoghurt as well, um, which I haven't tried. Yeah, and they, they're making their own mascarpone, which they don't sell, but it's a raw cream mascarpone and it's just made for the truffle cheese. Wow. And then we also are about to do an amazing new range of truffle products with um, one of, uh, well, probably my favourite chef in the world, actually. Um, definitely one of my favourite chefs in the UK. Uh, super respected, amazing um, name. He's going to, we've worked with him to do some new truffle products. We're going to, the first one's a truffle cream, which is sort of mayonnaise, salad cream, but with tons of truffle in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some other things in the pipeline. So they're going to be available as well. So basically all the things we've done um, have been in partnership with someone else. Uh, mm-hmm. because we want to use their expertise of our, our favourite chef, our favourite cheese maker, our favourite butter, um, rather than trying to do these things ourselves. The vast majority of truffle products are all made in factories in Italy, and they're all made in the same three or four factories. And then I've been to visit them and seen their label rooms, which is basically whole rooms filled with thousands of different labels and it's basically all the different companies that you think are making these truffle products around the world they're all made in these few factories and they just put different labels on them so like you know what you think is these um, individual brands are actually all, all just pretty much the same thing with a slight change to the recipe and then a 
a label slapped on it. But the key thing is that 99.9 recurring percent of truffle products are made with chemical flavoring, artificial truffle flavoring. So we've we've have an absolute ban. We don't go near that stuff. Um, we just make it with real truffles, which mm. basically means we make products that are much more expensive and much less strongly flavored. So you'd think that's a terrible business because our products are not as truffly in inverted commas as most of the ones you'd get for a few pounds in the supermarket. And they're much more expensive because, of course, they're filled with real truffles and truffles aren't cheap. Yeah. Uh, but we found there is definitely a market for them of people that want a real product that has a much more subtle but infinitely more rewarding and complex and delicious umami taste. Mm. Um, that sort of fake truffle flavor, which all truffle oils are made of, for example. I understand how people might like it at first. I even liked it myself once, but I, I can't bear it now. The more you eat of it, the less you like it and it sort of puts you off real truffles and um, it actually can't be properly digested either. It's, it's um, a chemical called uh, dithiopentane, which is derived from formaldehyde and it's, it's really nasty stuff. But in tiny, tiny drops, it you know can be addictive for people. Um, I mean, all those truffle crisps, for example, most truffle cheese, truffle butter, uh, all truffle oil, just a- anything... Um, that you buy is made with it so we're trying to do something totally different which is a much smaller but much more sort of gourmet foodie market exciting yeah it seems seems to work well so uh let's end it there but uh, a question that i ask all my guests is what is your favorite seasonal ingredient at the moment well it'd be kind of crazy if i didn't say white truffles in the height of the white <laughs> truffle season um yeah so I'd, I'd have to say white truffles is is my favorite seasonal ingredient any time of the year um and i'm extraordinarily lucky to work in them because i get to eat them all the time basically because um it's all to do with quality control and we can only ever sell the very best and it's the nature of white truffles that you get every single shipment there's a couple that um smell amazing but are clearly not going to last they're sort of on the turn um, even though they've only just come out of the ground, they have a short shelf life sometimes. So we have to eat them a lot because we couldn't possibly sell them. You can't preserve them. You can't do anything with them. So we so got to eat them, them probably, yeah, like twice a week. And it's such, so privileged to be able to do that. Basically. Oh, you're in the right business. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me and coming on the podcast. Not at all. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Before we end today's show, we'll be hearing from Fergus Drennan, aka Fergus the Forager. He's a wild food experimentalist, educator, and runs regular immersive foraging courses. The sea buckthorn plant, Hippophae rhamnoides, Hippo and Phaos, um, both Greek words, one meaning horse and the other shining because the Greeks in ancient times were supposed to have fed the leaves to their horses to give them shiny coats. Indeed, Pegasus, the white flying horse of Greek mythology, is supposed to have fed exclusively almost on sea buckthorn leaves. And the leaves indeed make a fantastic tea, very high in antioxidants and has a lovely flavour too. When most people think of sea buckthorn, they're thinking of the berries. They're small, about the size of petit pois, and intensely orange. And not just intensely orange, but intensely flavoured. Really tangy, orangey, hints of mango flavour. And an absolute joy to incorporate in both sweet and savoury dishes. So the berries are best harvested 
when they're fully ripe. And that happens really throughout September. But you can find them harvestable on the bushes to as late as January. So there's several ways of harvesting. You can harvest just for the juice by using really thick gloves to squeeze the berries on the bush, running the juice down, letting it drip down into a tub and then kind of straining it, which is really nice. Then you can use that either neat on its own or you can mix it with apple juice or put a, a little bit of maple syrup in there. And you can make sorbets with it, ice cream, all sorts of wonderful things. Then the berries themselves, quite hard to pick without them bursting and the juice jetting into your eye. Very painful, don't let that happen. But it's wonderful just to harvest whole berries. And a way to do that is to snap off dense sprigs that are really heavily laden with berries and then put them in a deep freeze for about two to three days to get them really hard. At that point, you can take them out and you've got to work very fast, really 30 seconds to a minute with each sprig, taking them out one at a time and knock them off with a fork. They will kind of come off because they're hard and frozen and then you can put them in a bag and put them back in the freezer. Then, of course, you can use them for juicing every day or you can incorporate them into any kind of rich chocolate kind of dessert. So chocolate torts, chocolate mousse on the top. It really kind of goes well, those sharp citrusy flavors working well with the chocolate, but not just sweet items, but savory as well. So it goes really well, like whole berries or a sauce made from the berries or the juice going wonderfully with venison or pork or duck or these kind of fatty meats like that. So have a look out for it. It's really good in season now. It's quite abundant in coastal areas and something that once you see and you taste, you kind of never forget. But I would say the smell of it, for some reason, doesn't appeal to every, everybody. I don't know why that is, because I think you'll be so bowled away with the flavour that the slightly, slightly strange smell would definitely not be kind of off-putting but seek it out give it a go it's highly nutritious incredibly high in vitamin c um b vitamins vitamin e amino acids essential fatty acids so what's not to like about c buckthorn Thanks, Fergus. I love sea buckthorn, and I know Scottish chef Roberta Hall, who we spoke to in series one of the podcast, is a massive fan as well. It's just a shame I'm not near the coast, so I can't pick some of the bright orange berries. That's all for this episode, but you can follow at Fergus the Forager on Instagram to learn more about wild edibles and at the Doorstep Kitchen for podcast updates and seasonal recipes. Now, I know next week I said it would be Blackthorn Salt, but there's been some changes to the schedule. It's lockdown after all, so anything goes shortly. Next week, I'll actually be speaking to the marvellous British chef, Mark Hicks, MBE. Then Gregory from Blackthorn Salt will be joining us the week after. Bye for now. Bye for now.